Bibles with you. It's chapter 14. If you don't have your Bibles with you, please don't look for it to put it on screen. I want you, if you don't have your Bibles, am I a little loud? I seem to be hearing myself too much. Um, thank you, thank you. In the first century, 95% of the people couldn't read. So when this gospel and all the other books in the New Testament were presented to people, they couldn't read them, so they heard them. So if you don't have your Bible, you can be like a first century group of Christians and hear this story, which is well known. Chapter 14, verse 13, if you have your texts. Now, when Jesus had heard this, he'd heard that Herod was after him, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And he went ashore and he saw a great throng. And he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a lonely place and, and the day is now over. Send the crowds to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Well, they said to him, we've only got five loaves and two fish. And he said, well, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish. And he looked up to heaven and he blessed them. And he broke and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate, and they all ate, and they were all satisfied. In fact, they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces of bread that were left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, plus women, plus children. We're going to explore that a little bit later. You might be destabilized because I'm not going to explore this story first of all. But when I get to it, you know lunch is soon to come. <laughs> well, that's a very nice welcome. Thank you, John. I have heard about you down through the years because as, I, as John intimated, I did work with Ely Missions for a little while where John works. and. The story has been that he was full-time, and then it was four days, and then it was three days, and then it was two days, because, of course, the church was developing, because, what, less than five years ago, there was two handfuls of people here, and, and now to see all you folks and hear those out there, the little ones and the workers, it's a joy to be here. Um, I understand that some of you have seen my face before, because you've seen me on your connect groups. Um, my name is Keith. I'm married to Judy. 46 years this year, and we, ha yes, she's a, she's a heroine. Um, <laughs> we have two children. Uh, Luke is married to Laura, and uh, they have two little girls. Uh, he works for Tia Fund, and Anna-Marie, our daughter, uh, is married to Chris, and they have three little girls. So we have five granddaughters who we love dearly. In fact, Anna-Marie is just coming with her little family back from France where they've been skiing. Uh, so we look forward to seeing them again soon. Um, so that's enough about me. 
but I would like briefly to talk about something that I've brought, which are some resources. Now, I don't need to explain these to you before, because if you've been to the Connect Groups here, you've seen me in this course, which has been exploring the Gospel of Mark and exploring Jesus. Three weeks ago, we were in the Lake District finishing filming our 16th course, which is actually on how to encounter God in the Bible. And uh, if you're interested in developing these for your own personal benefit, and in particular in developing a relationship with the Lord or the Spirit or the Father, then have a little look at them. And the other resources relate to books that I've written, mainly about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This, for example, is the first one I wrote, which my wife said to me, Keith, we don't get enough sermons on God. And then with my lecturer's hat on, most of my life I've been in academia, I thought about the books in our library, and they are this thick on God. And they do not attract you to God because they make him even more complex than he is. Well, I doubt, I doubt actually that you can make God more complex than he is because he's God. So why should we understand him? But the trouble is they weren't particularly accessible. So I thought, well, I'll write a book about God. And this is a gentle journey into who God is. And um, if you want to be delighted to see his commitment to us as individuals, check it out. And there's other books there on, on the spirit as well. But I brought this one up because it may well be that you will nod off. Um, and I think John has every reason to nod off because he was so passionate and enthusiastic in his leading of worship that he needs a good rest. Um, actually, just as a little segue, um, I have the privilege of going to so many churches. Most weekends I'm in one church in one denomination, either in the UK or abroad. And I'm always interested in the way that the Spirit chooses to speak to us because, of course, he could speak to us very naturally on his own, but he delights to take advantage of us, to help him bring his message to folks. So in that light, I'm grateful for yourself, John, and for the worship team in conscientiously preparing and presenting your worship uh, for us. Um, so thank you. In, and I will come back to that in a moment. But... If he does stay awake, then he doesn't need to buy this book. But this sermon that I am going... Sorry? Oh, what a man. This sermon I'm going to be sharing this morning, which is exploring two stories of Jesus' miracles, is in here. So if you're interested in developing your knowledge about them, have a check them out. Now, I was interested to see that we sang a song earlier on which had this line in it. I'm, I'm, I'm booming a little bit, am I not? Can I, can I reduce just a tad? Thank you. And the line was, you don't want heaven without us, or more specifically, you didn't want heaven without us, which is quite a presumptuous statement to make. You didn't want heaven without us. Really? You're God. You're completely self-sufficient. You don't need anybody. You certainly do not need us. You don't need angels. So what's this nonsense, you didn't want heaven without us? Well, it's actually true. And it sounds completely precocious for me even to say it. I need some evidence to support it, because otherwise this is just a forlorn dream that's not based in reality. So I do want to explore this truth by exploring some stories that Matthew records, the first one of which only Matthew records. And he's trying to help his Christians who are reading the book because they're fundamentally Jewish Christians who need to be helped to realize they are placed in the family of God. 
And in particular, what Matthew is trying to do is to help them in their developing relationship with Jesus, but also to remind them of the exalted status that they have as children of God, as sons of God, as daughters of God. And that's what I want to do. So story number one, which is the longer of the two stories? There were just the two of them, and they were sitting together and enjoying a time of togetherness because they didn't have much time to be just the two of them. And this was one of those occasions. It was tranquil, the weather was warm, sun was quite hot, and the water was cool to the touch. And they enjoyed being with each other, the leader and the follower. Oh, he wasn't a brilliant follower, but he was going to get better, and he was better than he had been. And the leader, well, he was just a bit special. And as they're enjoying this time of togetherness, some bossy, busy bodies push their way into their space, and they demand money. Now, they're not robbers. They're actually people who are going about their lawful business because they are tax collectors collecting tax for the temple in Jerusalem because we're 2,000 years ago when this story occurs. The leader, of course, is Jesus and the follower is Peter. And he's gonna figure in both of our stories and he's going to be representative of you and me as well. So here's the potential consternation on the part of Jesus and Peter. Are they going to pay the tax? Have they got the money to pay the tax? What's going to happen? Because every Jewish male over 20 years of age is expected to pay the temple tax once a year. It's a half a shekel, which is about two days working man's wage. It's not an insubstantial amount. The question is, and it's only Matthew who tells this story, and he tells it in two verses. You almost flip over it when you were reading it. The question is, is Jesus going to pay? doesn't look as if he has any money. That's not going to be a problem to Jesus. If he doesn't have any money, he could just create the coinage out of nothing and flick it in the direction of the tax collectors. But does he do that? Well, there are people who are watching Jesus and who are interested in this conversation because they also have to pay this temple tax if they are Jewish men. And the problem is, is that they're already taxed significantly. 40% of their wages goes in tax one way or the other in the first century. And most of the people in the first century are on the poverty line or below. So the temple tax is extra. Is Jesus going to pay? Please, Jesus, don't pay, because then you can be our precedent not to pay as well. What's he going to do? Well, now, there were Pharisees who were there, and you probably heard of the Pharisees. They're a, a religious group of people who have a significant impact on the lifestyles of the Jewish people in the first century because they keep to the law, the Old Testament, and they seek to live it out in their lives. They are not friends of the temple because in their estimation, which on this occasion is accurate, the temple is not fit for purpose. It's corrupt. There is nepotism and bribery going on in the temple. And they say to their followers, do not pay money to the temple because it is not representative of what it should be, the place where God dwells and honor is present. So they are interested to see what Jesus will do. 
Now, there's another group of people in the first century, and you've heard of them as well, because they're called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are another religious party, but they do not get on with the Pharisees. Sometimes they're put together as being opposing Jesus, but they don't get on because the Sadducees, well, they weren't that interested in the Old Testament law. They liked the first five books, but they weren't interested in any other. And their role was to keep the status quo. They were big friends of the temple because the Sadducees were reflective of aristocrats who were in Jerusalem. In fact, they didn't really live outside of Jerusalem. They lived in the southern part of Jerusalem, if you've been there, in the richest part, just south of the temple. And their role was to enjoy the ritual of the temple. They were always there. They loved to dress well. But even the Sadducees were getting a little uncomfortable with this temple tax because the temple had so much money already. And a couple of years after this story is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, the temple tax authorities get together and they say, what are we gonna do with this money we've got? Because we've got so much, what can we spend it on? So there's a lot of swirling thoughts going on in the minds of the people who are observing this statement by the tax collectors to Jesus and Peter, will you pay the temple tax? What's he going to do? Well, if you know the story, you know the answer. He pays the temple tax. Now, I'm a little bit disappointed by that because of the buildup I've just given. (laughs) Why did you do that, Jesus? Well, Jesus happens to always do everything right, so he must have had a reason. So I'm trying to think, what's the reason? Oh, by the way, when you read in the Gospels, please do ask questions of the text. You're not being critical, you're not being judgmental, you're not looking for faults, but you are recognizing that the Gospels were written for us to dialogue with the authors. They're not just there to give us information. They want us to think and to ask questions. So Jesus, why are you paying this temple tax? Is it because he wants us to recognize the importance of paying our taxes? Maybe. I don't think that's the reason. Is it because he wants us to realize that it's important that we pay money to our local church temple equivalent? I don't think that's his thinking at all. In fact, I'll tell you now why I think he's doing it. He's not doing it to make a statement to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the crowds or the temple tax collectors. What Jesus does is simply for the benefit of this lad here, Peter, who doesn't realize what's gonna happen, but he is the focus of this story. This, because it's gonna be a miracle, is just for his benefit and his benefit alone, unless you and I are gonna be incorporated into that, and I suggest we should. So if that's not why he pays the temple tax, why else is it? Because Jesus has been quite prepared to break the rules in the past. He's healed people on the Sabbath when Jewish legislation says you mustn't do that because that's working. Jesus does. In fact, Jesus goes one step further and he actually touches a certain group of people, the Leviticus 13 and 14, say you must not touch them because if you do, you will be unclean and go through a period of seven days of ceremonial uncleanness. Do not do it, God says. He's talking about lepers. What does Jesus do? touches the lepers. Jesus, you don't need to do that. Just heal them if you want to, but don't touch them because you're breaking the law. You're breaking God's law. Well, I'm going to. But Jesus, who do you think you are? Well, who do you think I am? So he's been quite radical. He's he's chosen to eat with the worst people in town. Jesus, do you realize who you've just 
gone and sat with. He chooses to decide when it's right to fast and when it's not right to fast. He's decided that. He's chosen to forgive people when they haven't said sorry. How can you do that, Jesus? Remember the guy who's let down, the paralytic who's let down through the roof? He's, gone to, he's come to be healed, but the first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Whoa, I haven't said sorry, Jesus. I haven't repented. Too late. I've forgiven you. <laughs> who, who are you? Who do you think? You can't do that. God's the one who chooses whom he will forgive, not you. Well, I've just done it. And to prove that I have the authority to forgive sins, do you want to stand up as well? Good grief, how would you do that? So he's been very prepared to be completely radical, except on this occasion when he pays the temple tax. Ah, but that's not the significant part of the story. It's how he does it that's significant because we know he could have paid it easily, immediately, even if he didn't have any money because he's God squashed into a human body. By the way, never think of Jesus on this earth as being somehow inferior to God the Father. Just because he's called God the Son doesn't mean he's lesser than God the Father. The reason he's called God the Son, and you may already know this, is because in a first century ancient Near Eastern environment, if somebody can't turn up like me, if I couldn't turn up to be, you, to be with you this morning, and we're all living in the first century, I could send Judy, who knows me better than anybody, but it's not gonna wash with you. I could send my best trusted academic colleague who knows the way I think, but he's not going to best reflect my DNA to you in a first century setting. The only person who's gonna do it is Luke, our son. And Luke, as the son, is the best reflection of me, his dad. And when Jesus comes, they decide, what are we going to call him? Are we going to call him the cousin of God, or the brother of God, or the uncle of God? We'll call him the son of God, because immediately people understand, oh, you couldn't come, God the Father, and if you could come, we couldn't see you anyway. So you've sent a representative who's going to reflect you best of all. He's called son. So now when we think about Jesus in this story, he's God squashed into a human form who could have easily paid the temple tax, but instead he says, Peter, do us a favor, go catch a fish. Now Peter says, I can do that. This is not difficult. I've been catching fish all my life. Well, do it. I'm sure Peter doesn't have a clue what's going on, but he might be surmising that this is what Jesus is thinking. I'm gonna go catch a fish, I'm gonna take it to the market, I'm gonna sell it, I'm gonna give Jesus the money and he's gonna pay the temple tax. It's a good plan, it's not the plan for Jesus. Peter is yet oblivious to the fact that he is gonna have the spotlight put on him because this is a blessed truth for him. So let's follow it through. Peter goes to the, to the harbor or to the shore and he drops the line in the water and he watches it plop and he sees the, the um, what do they call those things? Ripples, thanks John. It's ripples <laughs> developing into the parts of the uh, uh, water and then he waits. And then there's a little tug and he pulls it up and there's a fish or not in, blow me down, there's a shackle in the fish. One for Peter, one for Jesus. Nice little touch. Um, now here's my question. You don't have to answer out loud. If I was you, I wouldn't answer out loud. <laughs> not, not because you won't get it right, but because I never would answer anything out loud when I was a student, because I assumed if I think it's right, it's gotta be wrong. <laughs> so um, here's my question anyway. Think it in your mind. Who did the miracle? Who did the miracle? Now you might say, hey, I'm happy to come in any of your exams, Keith, because if all the questions are that easy, I am going to pass every time. It was Jesus who did the miracle. 
It was Jesus who arranged that that fish should be the fish that Peter caught, and either Jesus knew that there would be a shekel in its mouth, or he arranged for that shekel to be put there. Either way, it's a miracle that Jesus has performed, and you were right. Except I would suggest that you are partially right. Because I would also want to suggest to you, and you don't have to accept it, you think it through and decide for yourselves, I would also want to suggest that Peter had a part to play in the miracle. They did it together. That fish didn't jump out of the water and land on Peter's lap, supernaturally. It wasn't waiting for him, wagging its tail, identifying that this was the fish to be caught. No, Peter had to go through the work of fishing for the fish and bringing it to Jesus. They did it together. They partnered in the process of Jesus being able to fulfill his ambition, which was to pay the temple tax. Call him a junior partner if you wish, but he was definitely a partner. And I'm saying, Jesus, why did you do that? Why did you slow it down? Everybody's waiting. The temple tax collectors are shuffling around, wondering what's going on. And all the while, Peter's trying to catch a fish to help you. <laughs> to help you, for goodness sake, you created the universe. You don't need him to help you. What are you playing at? You just, Keith, quiet. This is for Peter. It's not for the temple tax collectors. It's not for the Pharisees, not for the Sadducees. This is for Peter because Peter needs to know this important truth that when I have an objective, an ambition, a target, I could easily achieve it on my own, but I would prefer to achieve it with Peter helping me. Peter, Peter, for goodness sake, you've only met him a couple of months ago. He's gonna mess up in a few years' time. Are you sure that you want him to be your partner? Absolutely yes, and he needs to know that lesson right now in his journey with me, because there's gonna come a time when that lesson is gonna be very important to him, because I'm not going to be there in the present. Well, what's that gotta do with you and me? Well, like Peter, you and I have gifts, talents, abilities, sensitivities, sensibilities. There are things about our character, our lifestyle, our journey thus far that make us unique, different to the person sitting next to us. We have things that make us different, useful, and Jesus' message to each of us is, I've got some plans this week for your town, for your community, for your office, for your college, for your school, for your street, for your family. I've got plans, big plans. Oh, tell us, Jesus. Love to hear what you're going to do. Well, I'll tell you, but um, here's the message. Would you help me? Oh, please don't. Don't ask me, Jesus, because I'll mess up. I'll slow it down. I'll make mistakes. You'll have to repair what I've done. Please let me watch you. You do it. And then in time, maybe 10 years, 20 years, who knows, maybe with a bit of luck, touch wood, I can help you a little bit. Jesus' message is, no, 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 Keith. I want you to be participating in the process with me. So this week, there will be times when you might think, I wonder if that person would like a smile, or a coffee, or a word, or even a prayer. How are you feeling? Would you like me to pray for you? These are not just random thoughts. Well, they could be, but I choose to prefer that these are opportunities when the Father or the Son or the Spirit speaks to us and in effect says, come on, let's the two of us do something together that's gonna to make a difference in somebody else's life. I could do it on my own, but I'd prefer to do it with you because this is why heaven is created. 
not just as the place where God lives, but it's the place where we will live with him. Remember when, just a little segue, but remember when in the Gospels you have this notion of, of us receiving eternal life when we become Christians? Well, what's eternal life, for goodness sake? Is it everlasting life? Because I'm not too sure whether I'm happy to have everlasting life, to be honest. I quite like having a sleep now and again. Everlasting life, what's so good about that? We're missing the point. It's not everlasting life. Eternal life is life that's associated with eternity. Now, who inhabits eternity? It's God. And basically what God is saying is, listen, this is the plan I've got for you. I'm not just coming to save you, forgive you your sins, give you a nice little house in heaven. I have come so that you might have my life, my eternal life, the life that revolves around me, the life that I exist in. That life I want you to have, and I want you to start having it now. Wow. This is why the writers in the New Testament begin to choose to call us sons and daughters of God. Paul says we're adopted into God's family because we're not add-ons. We are central to the Godhead. I'm not saying we all become gods. I'm not saying we become as important as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But what I am saying is that the life they inhabit, the life they enjoy, they don't want to give us little bits of it. They want us to enjoy that same kind of life. And Jesus is, in effect, saying, want us to start enjoying that down here on this earth. Well, now, I need to get to the next story, but unfortunately, I can't remember what time I started. Although I did take my watch off, it didn't look. So I'm going to be quick, just in case I've overstayed my welcome already. But I'll tell you the story quickly, and you know it very well. Jesus has been teaching and um, healing people all day, and then he's come to the end of the day, and the disciples say, Jesus... Listen, everybody's hungry. They're not starving, but they're hungry. Send them down to the town so that they can get to the villages and to the bakers before they close and get some food. Well, it's a good plan. And you may remember what Jesus says to them. You feed them. You jolly well, well, no, he didn't say you jolly well feed them, but he does say you feed them. And I'm thinking, whoa, Jesus, that's a bit harsh. You know they can't feed them. It's one thing to ask Peter to catch a fish, because he can do that, but you can't ask these disciples to feed these people, 5,000 men, plus women, plus children. Got to be 12 to 15,000 people there. That's just nasty, asking the disciples to feed them. Maybe Jesus is a bit reacting to the fact that they have sought to give him advice as to what he should do with these people. Jesus, you, you send them down to the villages. You cheeky monkeys, who do you think you are? You jolly well feed them. I don't think that's where he's coming from. But Jesus doesn't say things idly. And when Jesus says, you feed them, there's a part of him that is hoping that one of them is going to say, okay, I will. Now that person knows he can't because he doesn't have that supernatural ability, but he does know that if Jesus asks you to do something, then you can. Peter, go catch a fish. Well, he could because he has that natural ability. Here, you feed these 15,000 people. I can't, Jesus. Yeah, well, I know you can't, and I know that you know that you can't, and you know that I know that you can't, but I'm asking you to do it because since I'm asking you to do it, you can. Now, they miss it. That's okay, because Jesus will give this opportunity to them and they will learn that when Jesus gives a commission, they will be able to fulfill it with their abilities or with his abilities. So Jesus passes that over and says, okay, give me the fish, give me the bread, and he breaks the bread and he prays over it. 
And then here's the thing. He gives the bread to the disciples. He asks the people to sit down in groups of 50, one of the other gospels tells us. And he gives the bread to the disciples. And here's how the scenario develops. I'll check it on the heavenly video when I get there. Hopefully not too soon. But the, everybody has a, a platter of bread and some fish and they give it to the people. And this is gonna take some time. Jesus, it would have been a lot quicker if you'd have just said, one, two, three, everybody's full. He doesn't do that. He could have arranged for chickens to drop down and land on their laps. I mean, God did that in the Old Testament, didn't he? When he were, people were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land, every day there was quail that would land and bread that we were waiting for them. He could have done that because he's God, but he doesn't. He slows the process down because this miracle is not specifically for the people, but it is for his 12 young lads who are going to need to learn the lesson that when Jesus gives a commission, number one, they can do it, and when Jesus has an objective that he could fulfill very easily since he's God, he prefers to use people to help him. I'm wanting to say, Jesus, that's the most daft plan I've ever heard. He says, this is Jesus talking. These people need to know that I want to achieve my objections my objectives with them. And so here's it goes. So I'm here and I give some, because he's on the front row and he's aware that there's thousands coming behind him, he's not gonna take much. And then I will continue and I will continue and everybody will be getting it. But here's the miracle, they never go back to Jesus. Never go back to get more food. Run out, oh, better go back to get Jesus to do his magic at the front. No, no, never. They just keep going. So the miracle is constantly happening. Now I'm not saying that they are the miracle workers, but I am recognizing that they have had a part, to be honest, quite an important part, in ensuring that that miracle continues right to the back of the people. Didn't need to do that. Could have done it like that. But he slows the process down because the disciples need to learn the lesson. Good grief. <laughs> you see what's happening, Thomas? I've still got as much as when I started. In fact, you know that right at the end, they have more left over than they had at the beginning. And they had a part to play in that. Now, the funny thing is, when Matthew tells the story, it doesn't look as if the people realized that a miracle had occurred. This would have been the time when Jesus could have said, folks, before you take any more food, let me just tell you how you got it. It was me. It doesn't say it. This would have time would be the time when he could have said, I am the bread of life and preach that sermon. He doesn't do it because this is not for the people. This is for his lads. And they are the ones who benefit from this beautiful truth that the creator of the universe says, I've got a plan. Loads are going to benefit. Wonderful, Jesus. Go for it. Lovely. We'd love to have the front view to watch it. No, 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 lads. You're going to help me. We've got to get over the presumptuousness of that statement that we are helping Jesus because it's Jesus who's asking us to help him. So this week, well, let's imagine if Jesus came into this room now and I can see him come and he walks to the front and let's imagine that he, he stands and he says, this is what I'm going to do in your office and in, in your street and in your family and in your factory. I'm going to be doing this. We'll give him a clap. Wonderful, Jesus. Hope I'm not having a coffee break when you come and do it. And then he gives us the statement, well, actually, I'd like you to be involved. I'd like you to help me. Now, my reaction immediately is, no, sorry, no, please don't. Ask John. He's the pastor. He's a lot holier than me. Please ask him because he's not going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to mess it up. Please don't. I'm going to be, no, don't. This is Jesus. 
who is our God who says, that's my plan. You need to elevate yourself in your own perception of who you are. You're not becoming arrogant or big-headed because you're not the one who is pushing in and saying, I would like to participate. I'm asking you to participate. Oh, I'm so tempted to go to the next story, but I can't. But Matthew does. So read it on your own because the next story is when Peter says to Jesus, having walked on water, Peter says, since it's you, Jesus, since it's you walking on the water, ask me to walk on the water. Do you see what Peter's doing? He is learning the lesson that if Jesus asks him, he doesn't presumptuously jump onto the water. He says, since it's you, ask me and I will respond. And Jesus says, okay, come. Peter, for goodness sake, who do you think you are? Jesus is walking on the water because he's God. You're not God. Yeah, but I'm just following what Jesus has asked me to do. Peter, go catch a fish. Oh, I can do that. Well, do it. And together we'll be surprised with what is achieved. Feed these people. I can't do that. Well, do it and you'll be surprised. Walk on water. No, that's a God thing. Yeah, but I'm asking you to do it. Now, to be honest, and I'm going to close now, most of the times when God asks me to do something, they're most ordinary. Um, they're not particularly supernatural or sensational, and sometimes we think it's always got to be that. I think it's rarely that. Most of the things he asks us to do are the most normal uh, elements of relational um, interaction with other people, be it in church or outside of church. But be open to the fact that you have two ears, one of which is to listen to the Spirit. You notice that as a Welsh person, I call them ears, but I've learned it's ears. <laughs> we have two ears. One is to listen to the Spirit, just dropping thoughts into our mind, and then to follow them through. So let me pray. Father, if we thought like this without evidence from your word, we would be ever so nervous that we were creating false destinies, forlorn hopes, being incredibly presumptuous. So thank you that you inspired Matthew to record these stories with the messages that you, the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, choose to achieve your objectives with us. Uh, that's quite remarkable, Lord. Um, but I pray that this week you'll surprise us with opportunities to partner with you and we'll feel joy, but also we'll feel joy at the joy that you feel when we work together to achieve your kingdom. Yes. Thank you so much, amen.